The reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 to 17. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thank you very much, Polly. Uh, it'd be worthwhile if you could just to have page 310 of the Bibles in the pews open, as I will refer to one or two verses just outside of that reading. Christmas is getting ever nearer to us, as we can tell from the increasing number of candles being lit on our Advent wreath, only two to go now. And we're expecting, I'm sure, a number of familiar readings coming up in church services, whether here or elsewhere, over the next couple of weeks, particularly perhaps those popularised by the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols, uh, which for many of us will be the start of proper Christmas on Christmas Eve at 3pm. Uh, the sixth of those nine lessons is um, t- generally Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, which we actually had in Tots as our story in Tots this Wednesday, uh, where Mary and Joseph head down to Bethlehem and Jesus is born. They head down to the city of David because Joseph is of the house and line of David, that passage says. And it's into that house and line that Jesus was born. One of many clues there in the the references, two references in that short passage to David, that Christmas, the Christmas story, began a long time before the angel appeared to Mary, a long time before she hopped on a donkey and made her way down the road to Bethlehem. Our current uh, morning series, uh, Running Up to Christmas, has been looking at a few of the characters in that long Christmas story who appear on the way to Bethlehem. When I was doing a bit of church history research as part of my ordination training, I particularly looked at the long 18th century. That was my period. Um, A name given to it because major events in the past don't conveniently occur at round numbers. 
Uh, although the 18th century was 1700 to 1799, uh, the period was not defined by events in those two particular years, but rather by the revolution of 1688 and then by the Battle of Waterloo of 1815 on the other end, both a little bit outside the 18th century itself. And so the long 18th century is 127 years rather than just 100 years. Well, in a slightly bigger way, the long Christmas story, what we're looking at at the moment in our series, is not just one crazy week in Bethlehem. Rather, it is a very long story going back thousands of years before that week, and actually thousands of years after to us as well. We're going to zoom in today on one of the characters from that long story uh, on David today, having looked at Adam, Abraham, and Moses already in the run-up to Christmas. And our reading today comes at a key moment in David's life. There were many important moments in the life of such an important man, his defeat of Goliath, perhaps, and his uh, anointing as king at Hebron over Judah and then over Israel as well, and his bringing of the Ark of God into Jerusalem, his new capital, major events. But this event, coming just after the entry of the Ark, the giving of the covenant to David, is perhaps the defining event. This uh, covenant, that is this unilateral promise, this unbreakable undertaking from God, is known to us as the Davidic covenant, as it was mediated through David, coming from the prophet Nathan. God had already, in his story, made promises to many others, some of whom we've looked at already in our series. Promise to Noah never to flood the world again. Promise to Abraham to make him into a great family. Promise to Moses that he would lead the people into the promised land and he would bless them if they obeyed him. Well, now he's making additional, further promises. This time, not directly uh, towards the whole nation, but certainly for the benefit of the whole nation, but rather directly to one royal family, to the line of David, as we see in verse 16 of our reading. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Just by way of a bit of a more immediate background, David was enjoying a moment of peace. He was generally a man of war. He had to fight a lot of wars against the Philistines. But this is a moment of peace. He's just defeated some Philistines at a place called Baal Perazim, a valley near Jerusalem. And he wanted, in this moment of peace, to build a house, a permanent abode for the Ark of the Covenant. That is, the gilded chest carrying the tables of the law made by Moses, the symbol of God's presence with his people on earth. That ark had been living in a tabernacle, a tent, albeit a very, very fancy tent, in the wilderness for their wanderings in Sinai, and had stayed living in a tent since their entry into the land of Canaan, uh, living at Shiloh, a little town north of Jerusalem. But now the Jebusites have been kicked out of Jerusalem. David has set up his own capital city there, has built a house of cedar given to him by Hiram of Tyre, his neighbour to the north. And now he wants to build a permanent house, likewise, for the ark, which he's brought in to his new capital city. Feeling anxious about the fact that he's got this wonderful cedar palace, but the ark is in this slightly mouldy, crumbly old tent, which by that stage would be hundreds of years old. He wants to do one for the Lord and give him a rather nice permanent 
house. But the surprise for David, an intervention to his plans. Uh, and I'm just going to read us verses 6 and 7, just before our reading, the beginning of God's intervention in God, uh, David's uh, little plan. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The answer to that rhetorical question, of course, being no. God did not command to any of the judges of Israel or to the first king Saul that they should build him a permanent house rather than the tents that had been commanded. It might be different if God had not specified a particular type of accommodation to Moses, if he had left it up to Moses' discretion as to how he housed the Ark of the Covenant and his common sense. But instead, it was actually explicit how Moses was to house the ark. In fact, there were three chapters of Exodus all about the design for the tabernacle in the wilderness and about Moses building it. Chapters of Exodus, in fact, which David, the king, should have been very intimately familiar with, given that it was one of the three rubrics of being king over Israel in Deuteronomy that the king had to write out a copy of the law of Moses. David should know exactly how the tabernacle should be housed. So maybe it was a nice idea he had, a nice thought to house the ark in a permanent structure. In fact, to him it seems to honour the sacredness of the object. It seemed to him almost logical and sensible to do this thing. But however logical and sensible and religious it might have seemed, it was contrary to what God had said. How many times, as with David, since then, has the church gone wrong because it's come up with nice ideas, even logical ideas, even religious ideas about how things should be, but which are contrary to what God has said? Ideas about things like church ornamentation and vestments, about theology, about moral teaching. How often, like David, we've gone astray by coming up with our own nice ideas about these things, which seem right to us, but contrary to what God has said, either directly or implicitly. We're at risk, certainly, when we do that, and David was at risk, likewise, of deviating himself. And so, the intervention, which we've just read, don't think about it, says God. I've not told anybody to change my accommodation. But he doesn't just stop with that. The prophecy from Nathan is more than just a stop and desist order. In fact, God chose this moment to reveal some plans to David, plans to build a royal house from the family of David. We've read verse 16. It also comes up in the second part of verse 11, the beginning of that second paragraph on our sheets. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. There's a deliberate irony here. David wanted to build a house for God. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. The house David was planning to build would have been of cedar wood or precious stones. The house that God plans to build is going to be a house of kings. 
And God's promise very quickly distills on just one of those kings, as we see in verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And the reversal of plans that we see with that house building then comes full circle in verse 13. He, that one descendant, is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David wanted to build a house for God. God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you. And then one of that house that God builds, he's the one who will build a house for God. And we might at first thought think, okay, David's descendant building a house for God, Solomon. He did actually go ahead and build the temple of Jerusalem. And indeed, it was a glorious house that he built. Um, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But his throne did not endure forever, as that verse says. In fact, within weeks of his death, Rehoboam and Jeroboam were fighting over the kingdom, and dividing it between them. And likewise, the house that he built didn't last. Within just a few hundred years, it was torn, stone from stone, and all of its glory stripped away. Now, the greater son who this promise refers to has to be, can only be, a more distant descendant, one, in fact, who came a thousand years later, by which time war and exile had reduced the house of David to obscurity. In fact, by that time, not one but two other Israelite houses had risen to take the kingship. Firstly, the Hasmoneans after the Maccabean revolt, and then the Herodians a little bit nearer to the time we're going to focus on. But still, there were descendants of David. And they knew that they were his descendants. They knew they were from Bethlehem. And one of those, of course, was Joseph of Nazareth, who went there, and into whose house and line was born a son, Jesus. David's days, by that stage, were certainly well over, as verse 12 says, and he rested, as that verse says, with his ancestors, as did many dozens of intervening generations also of that family, resting with their ancestors. But God's promise remained, and God always fulfills his promises. He kept his word, he raised up an offspring, who didn't look at the time like he had a kingdom, but he certainly did. He said that his kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom instead to which we all belong, even though we're not Israelites. All of us who acknowledge him, Jesus, as king. A kingdom which has been established and has been growing for over 2,000 years. That is the house for God's name that would be built, the one that really matters. So much better than the bricks and mortar that David had dreamed up on his bed, so much better than the bricks and mortar and precious stones that Solomon threw up 30 years later. Like living stones, we are being built into a spiritual house for God's dwelling. So the Christmas story goes back a long way, thousands of years before the events 
in Bethlehem, before the donkey and the inn, the manger and the star. Thousands of years back, but also thousands of years forward to us. Everyone today is called to be part of this house that is still being built. Everyone's called to bow before that child born in the city of David and so enter his house. If we're not in it, let's enter it. If we are in it, let's rejoice all the more at being part of it and welcome others in. David, King David, had a a big reorientation when he received this prophecy from Nathan the following day. It reset his focus from his work for God, I will build him a house, to God's promise to him, he's going to give me a house, and from that house will come a son. Sometimes, likewise, we need to recheck our focus. Is our focus, is the heart of our faith on God's promise fulfilled in Christ, overflowing with thankful works for him, Or does it start with us and what we are going to do for God to earn his favour? Let's pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for that greatest son of David's, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his eternal kingdom, his house, and our membership of it. May all of our hopes and our dreams and our plans focus on that king, and our works be to his glory. Amen.